Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. First, um, I need to know, are there any Princess Bride fans in the house? Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. All right. So 2 Samuel 21.20. This is in um, ISB. Later on, there was another battle at Gath um, where there was a very tall man with six fingers on each hand (laughs) and six toes on each foot. The original six-fingered man is actually from the Bible. Hello, my name is Indigo Matoya. Yeah? Okay. I got a few of you? Great. Okay, let's look at um, Judges. 2016, there were 700 chosen men in this army, all of whom were left-handed. Also, Princess Bride, remember? Why are you smiling? Because I know something you don't know. I am not left-handed. I am not left-handed either. Okay. (laughs) The tactical strategy of the left hand also from the Bible. Um, Job 39, 9 to 10. This is in the King James Version. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Canst thou bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow? Or will he harrow the valleys after thee? Also in Isaiah 34, 7, King James Version. And the unicorns shall come down with them, and the bullocks with the bulls in their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made fat with fatness. Okay, how many knew that any uh, translation ever referenced unicorns? That's kind of weird, isn't it? Now, the term unicorn is actually referenced nine times in the King James Version. Um, Other translations, that's translated wild ox or buffalo, But King James has it as unicorn. So, you know, last week, Pastor Josh said, um, if the Bible rubs you the wrong way, turn around. And I kind of want to say today, like, if the Bible rubs you the wrong way, there's a chance it might be translation, and maybe we should dig into that verse a little bit more. So this week, that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about translation, where to look, why it matters, and equip you to do some of your own digging into which translation might be best for you. Now, for those of you who know this about me, when I get on a topic, I, like, research hard. Okay, like, I dig in. How many people have, like, really dug into translation before? Yeah, a few people, a few people. Um, So I have 30 pages of notes. Yeah, So I want to do something before I get going here. I want to practice two faces from you. The first one is, boy, Pastor Emily, this is really interesting and exciting. Can everyone practice that face for me? The other one is, this is a slow and painful death. Please move along. And I'm going (laughs) to, if you can help guide this ship a little bit. I'd appreciate it, because I do want this to be engaging and not overly um, academic. 
So what translation do y'all use? Shout it out. Okay, King James, NIV. Seem to be the two I heard the most. Okay. Um, why? Grew up with it? Okay. What was that one? Yeah, it's relevant for today. Okay, cool. So I think that's, you know, those are standard answers, right? Like we use the Bible that we grew up with, that our church uses, that is convenient. Most Christians haven't given it a whole lot of thought, honestly. So my goal for today is that we're going to have this better understanding of translation and that you can feel equipped to like kind of understand the differences, maybe dig into it a little on your own. So at Resurrection Life Church, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. We are considered a full gospel church, and we believe the word of God, all of it, is applicable in our lives today. So I think a good place to start this conversation is in the word of God, right? So let's look at 2 Timothy 3.16, where it tells us all scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed, it might say in your translation, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the Bible was written by people, but inspired by God. A little asterisk here is that doesn't mean if it's in one translation, we now have a theology around unicorns, right? 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God, that when you received the word of God, you heard it from us. You accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow, as it judges the thoughts and purposes of the heart. I love that verse. It's really powerful. It's very descriptive. God gives, he speaks to us through his word, doesn't he? Have you ever, have you ever had one of those words just jump off the page and you're like, that is for me. I just heard a really good testimony about that where God just, he illuminates it to us. It's supernatural, actually. When it's living and active, it's actually supernaturally effective and can be like feel individual to us. It's definitely not stagnant in just some historical work, right? It's alive. Isaiah 55, 11, So is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. God's word is so powerful. Speaking God's word, speaking those promises will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose that it was written and sent. Jeremiah 1.12, this is in the Amplified Version, says, Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am actively watching over my word to fulfill it. God is actively watching over his word. Think about when we speak God's promises in the Bible, understanding it does not return void. Right? Isn't that amazing that God is watching over his word? John 6, 
63. This is in the NIV. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit, capital S, and life. Now let's look at that um, in the NTE. This is the New Testament for everyone. It says, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is no help. The words I have spoken to you, they are spirit, small s, they are life. Okay, now hold on, hold on. Which one is it? Is it the Holy Spirit? Are they spirit? What do we do when there's a difference? You know, what's true? What's the word of God? Now, in this particular one, I would um, actually cite Ephesians 6.17, where it says, Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, capital S, which is the word of God. So there are over 450 English translations of the Bible. That's a ton. That's a ton. If you open up your Bible app and just kind of flip through them, there's like 70 available digitally at your fingertips right now. I find that, I mean, that's crazy, right? That's a lot of translations for us to try to figure out, okay, which one am I going with here? And I find it, I don't know. I don't want to use the word offensive. It's not offensive. It's great. Everybody should have their, the translation that speaks to them. But there are over 2,000 languages that haven't gotten one translation yet. And here we are in English with 450 you know, so we are, the fact that I'm even up here having this conversation, we're very blessed to have all of these different translations when some people don't even have one in their native language. But it certainly does beg the question, which one should I pick? And when two disagree, which one is right? So to start, I want to just kind of explain a little bit about translation. So there are three main types of translation. One is called word-for-word, word, or sometimes they call that formal equivalence. The second is thought-for-thought, thought, or dynamic equivalence. And the third is paraphrase. Now, when you actually dig into this, you're going to find like 50 different terms people use. But those are the main three. Basically, they're in those three different categories. Word for word is exactly what it sounds like. It is an attempt to do exactly the equivalent of this word in the next language. Okay, so they go through and word for word, try to copy the Bible into um, the receiver language, they would call it. So examples of this um, would be the King James Version or the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. The next type, thought for thought, this is when the translators are like, okay, what, what did that mean? Let me translate that meaning of that thought into the receiver language. So they prioritize the meaning over the exact word, if that makes sense. So examples would be NIV and NLT. Um, those are both thought-for-thought thought translations. And the third, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about today, but I want to make sure I mention, um, is the paraphrase. So the paraphrase, I mean, it's basically a summary, right? It's someone's interpretation, someone's rephrasing of the Bible. And it usually 
you know, it's trying to make it culturally relevant. But how do I rephrase this so that someone sitting in this culture in this seat today, you know, it might have um, a more, more meaning to them. So examples of that would be the message, the living Bible, the good news translation. Those are all paraphrases. And I'll give you a couple of examples here. So there's actually a paraphrase that, that Josh laughs about called the cotton patch, and it's a little redneck, and it's funny. And they do things like, um, instead of the breastplate of righteousness, it becomes the bulletproof vest. Okay, so that's, it's this eh, kind of, right? Not quite. Um, another one would be if we looked at Romans 10.13 in the King James Version, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then we look at that same verse in the message. It says, everyone who calls God help gets help. Now, now to me, like, help isn't the same as salvation, right? I mean, it's not qu uh, close, but not quite the same. So my point is, be a little cautious with paraphrases. Most people don't use those for in-depth study. It's more of a supplement, reference it, get a chuckle out of it, but it's not for in-depth study. So if I could get this chart up, um, there's actually, I wanted to show you that it's not like they fit neatly into categories, right? It's more of a spectrum. So on one side, we have the word-for-word -word extreme, which is, you know, the NASB, the ESV over here, King James Version. And then it kind of starts moving, and thought for thought, NIV, NLT, all the way over here is the paraphrase. They call it the retelling, um, the good news translation, the message are all the way over there. So it's kind of a spectrum. And where you want to be on that spectrum is a bit uh, of personal opinion. I did want to talk to you a little bit about, so in my work, I do quite a bit with translation. I work with translators. And I had an experience that I thought would really highlight the difference between word for word and thought for thought. So recently, I needed to have a survey translated into Swahili. And the, the survey questions I had gotten and I wanted translated were actually written for like a UK or an England audience. It was English, but it was a different kind of English. So one of the questions was, you know, on, on a scale of zero, not at all, to 100 completely, how much does this question sound like you? I regularly spend time in the garden. Seems pretty straightforward, right? But if I were in England or the UK, the garden means, like, my yard, right? So I read that in English, and I think, the garden, flowers, trees, you know, something manicured, they're just talking about their backyard. You hanging out? You playing in your backyard, kid? Okay. Now, when I take that word for word, you see in English, the meaning changed. But garden in Swahili, actually what, they're, what they think about is a plot of dirt that they are laboring in with their family, their family plot um, for food. So if you think about that, if I were doing a word-for-word -word translation and I asked that question, I would go, the intent was, hey, how much are you recreating in a safe space in your, in your yard by your house? And the question would have changed to, 
How hard are you working, breaking a sweat in this ground for your family's food? That's like the opposite question, right? So the kind of thing that we would do is we would actually, you know, we'd have a focus group and say, okay, this is what we want to say. What's the equivalent to you? What does that mean? We would do the translation. We would do a back translation. We would pilot it and make sure, you know, everyone was understanding it the way we wanted them to understand it. It's quite a process. But word for word would have been super, super different. And you guys, this is just English in this decade. Right? Yeah. So, you know, had I kept it word for word, I would have been totally baffled by the results, had to throw them out actually. So I had to go back and go through that process and, okay, how do we change this question? So would it have been better for me to keep it word for word? Uh, In this case, no. But when we're talking about translation, it's a bit of a debate, right? So is it still the word of God if the word has changed? Or is it still the word of God if the meaning has changed? And where do we want to be on that spectrum? Okay, do you see the problem? (laughs) Okay. So to kind of illustrate this a little bit more, just looking at English, um, there are about 300 words in the King James Version that no longer have the same meaning today. I'll just highlight a couple. So the first one, um, closet. Matthew 6, 6 in the King James Version. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy father, which is in secret. Now, the Empower ladies, we just watched War Room, where they literally cleaned out a closet, sat in the closet to pray. Right? I mean, that's cute, but that's not actually what it meant. Closet didn't mean closet. It just meant an inner room of your house, a private room somewhere in your house. So we have a, we have a tendency to, to not realize that when we're reading, right? And just assume that they meant what we think they meant. Okay? Uh, another one is conversation. Ephesians 4.22 says that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So conversation didn't actually mean conversation. It meant like living your life in front of people. So that's a super different meaning, right, than conversation. Um, leasing. I like this one. Leasing. Psalms 4.2. How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Say la. Hmm, that's interesting. So, I don't know, do you think Jesus is against, like, you know, is he really just pro-car ownership? Is that what it is? No. So, leasing in the King James Version actually meant lying. Leasing meant lying. So, that's another thing that it would be hard for us to actually, word for word, it's hard to get the full meaning, right? So I want to be clear. I'm not saying that word for word is bad. I'm not saying that. But I do want to call out those limitations because I think it's really important to understand that meaning has changed throughout the years. And we're not just talking about the meaning of English. Now we're talking about 
the understanding and the meaning of Greek, Hebrew, of Aramaic, and English, you know, the receiver language, the original languages, it's, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to translation and understanding. So I would actually recommend choosing a word-for-word and a thought-for-thought and get a little bit more round, rounder view of things as you're reading the word. Okay, so that was point one. Number two is look into how it was translated. An example of this would be, was it a single person that just sat down and did their best? Was it a team? Were they scholars? Who was it? Who translated this? An example is the message. We talked about the message as a paraphrase. That was actually the work of one man, Eugene Peterson. And he himself says he translated the Beatitudes in 10 minutes. Just sat down, busted it out. There it is. Other translations have a full team of people working on them. And people from lots of different denominational affiliations. I think that's important, too, to have a well-rounded view of the Scripture. Another thing to keep in mind is, did they start with source text or another Bible? So some actually go back to ancient text, and they start doing their translation, word for word or thought for thought. Some actually took an existing Bible and said, we're going to start with this and make little tweaks. That's important. So, for example, the New Living Translation, which has become popular, actually started with the Living Bible paraphrase, not the original text. So they modified a paraphrase, did a couple references back and forth with ancient text to come up with their translation. To me, that matters. And actually, interestingly, this is hard to find via Google. It's really hard to find. You know, um, Pastor Josh and I, we were trying to look it up for lots of different translations. Okay, how did, how did this happen? And a lot of times it's kind of buried in there. It's really, it's hard to find. They might reference source text, but actually getting the method is a little bit hard. So the third thing I want to talk about is source text. <sighs> to kind of paint an understanding of this, the earliest book of the Bible, Mark, wasn't written until about 40 years after Jesus died. The book of John was written about 70 years after Jesus died. 70 years. That's a lifetime. That's a long time, right? I think about, you know, that would be like my 100-year-old grandma writing down a story from the Great Depression. You know, that's, that was a long time ago. So today... Um, the earliest manuscripts used in translation were more like three to four hundred years after the events took place. If we could pull up that, um, yeah. So I know this has a lot of information crammed onto a slide, but I want to point your eyes to the columns, the two, um, the furthest right columns, gap from original in manuscript copies. So this is a list of various ancient texts. And it's telling us when the original was written, when the earliest manuscript was written, the gap from the original, and then how many copies have been, you know, found, basically. How many do we have today? So at the very bottom, it says the Greek New Testament manuscripts. I want to point out the gap from original says 30 to 300 years. 
and also point out 5,856 manuscript copies. And you can see how that compares to other ancient texts. So really, the Bible, I mean, it's, it sounds like a long time, but it's really not compared to the other ancient texts that, you know, like the Iliad, for example, gap from original, 450 years, 1,800 copies. Okay, it just gives us a comparison. It puts it in perspective. I want to show you, this is pretty cool. So the other thing to keep in mind, when we're saying we have over 5,000 copies, those were not all collected at once. It's not like the day the King James Version was written, we had 5,000. We didn't. That was collected over a period of time, and things have been found over the years. And what I'm holding here, this is um, a copy, obviously it's not the original, of the oldest piece of Scripture. This is what it looked like. This is the old, the size. It's pretty small, right? This is considered one of those 5,000. This is the Papyrus 52 from about 117 AD. So that's pretty cool, right? And it has, um, the scripture it has on there is actually John 18, 34 to 36 on one side, and the other side is John 18, 37 to 38. Now, when we're talking about complete copies, the first complete New Testament book. So a lot of them were individual, right? It wasn't like, boom, here's the Bible. It was like, ah, oh, here's a book. That was around AD 200. And the earliest complete copy of the New Testament, um, the Codex Sinaiticus, was around the 4th fourth, fourth century. So it's really just important to understand that, okay, that we have these little pieces. And it's really cool, actually, that when they find additional older pieces, how similar, how much God's word has been intact over that huge time frame. It really has. So one of the earliest English Bibles was the King James Version. It was commissioned by King James in 1604, and he was really feeling pressure from Puritans and Calvinists. And he also was feeling like, wow, some of these church people don't really trust my authority. They don't, you know, they see God as a higher authority. So King James, um, they actually, he wove a lot of language around government in there for the purpose of solidifying his rule. Um, there were, the translators, you know, had, they were kind of catering to him a little bit. So one of the examples of that is because the word for baptism meant submersion, and King James was a sprinkler. They're like, we're not going to tra translate that. It's going to be just baptismal. We're going to leave it as it is and let him figure it out. An interesting thing to know is that in King James' version was actually based off of only six documents. And one of those was another translation of the Bible. So while we have 5,000 plus today, they had six when that was translated. I think it's a, a fun little factoid that actually um, the translator had one um, translation of Revelations to translate off of and lost a page. So there's a section where he just kind of did his best. <laughs> That's funny. So out of looking at all of the, the Bible translations, there are about 3,000 variances, 
which sounds like a lot, but actually 85% is identical, which is a lot. And of that 15% that's not, 14% is due to word placement, punctuation, pronouns, things like that. And only about 1% to 2% is actual content difference. So when we're looking at the word, I mean, that's not just amazing. That's supernatural. Yeah, it's awesome. Really exciting. So source text. <laughs> that was my point, source text. So I recommend choosing a translation that has some of the oldest source text at least referenced and included in that translation. And as they keep uncovering more documents, I mean, that's why we get new versions, right? Like the NIV was just updated in 2011. Why did we need a new version? Well, there's new information. Okay. So I wanted to pull up that next graph. Yeah. So this is a list of just a handful of the over 5,000 source texts. And looking at those two middle columns where it talks about language and date, you guys, this is right on Wikipedia. Pull it up. See what your translation uses. Okay. Is it the old stuff? Is it the new stuff? So for many, many years, probably a decade, I used the NASB. That is the one the scholars use. They use it in seminaries. And I would study the Bible by looking at the NASB and my Strong's Concordance. And I would flip back and forth. And that's a really good way to study. You can look at the original Greek word and all of the meanings it had. And, you know, you can, if there's a different meaning, you can look, you can see for it yourself and go back and forth and back and forth. And you're getting a complete view of scripture, right? Well, that's all fine and dandy until one day it's like, Jesus wasn't, Jesus wasn't Greek. Why am I studying all of the meanings of the Greek word? Jesus wasn't Greek. This parable wasn't originally taught in Greek. Right? Has that ever <laughs> occurred to you? So what did Jesus and the disciples speak? It was actually Aramaic. The Syrian version of Aramaic. Now, to be fair, they probably had a working knowledge of Greek as a second language, but it wasn't, when we're reading these stories, they happened in Aramaic. So it's very important to understand that in a lot of cases, the Greek manuscript that we're saying is the original is already a translation either of written or verbal Aramaic. And that's important because Aramaic was this like elaborate feeling language and Greek is more of a reductionistic language. So when we're only looking at the Greek, we're actually losing a lot of the meaning and the intent. So most concordances don't have Aramaic. Some, some do, I've been told. A little bit here and there. But that's just an important thing to note. And if you can find one that has some Aramaic, use it. Because you're going to get a more comprehensive picture of what was intended in the Word of God. So I'm also intentional about choosing translations and concordances that use Aramaic insights and manuscripts because I really think that adds to the picture for us. Next, I want to talk briefly about bias. So has any bias been inserted 
intentionally or unintentionally, into the translation you're using. Now, some people think, oh, these, these scholars don't have bias. Yeah, everybody does, right? It's, we do. We're human. I want to mention, just talk briefly about Greek. So the Greek used in the New Testament was common Greek. We know that now. They didn't know that originally, but we know that now. So the these, thous, all that, that was us. That wasn't in there. The original Greek, that was meant for people to consume, average people, normal people. It didn't have the these and the thous. In the Greek New Testament, there are 5,400 distinct words. To put that in perspective, English has 30 times that. We have over 170,000 words in the English language. So if a translator is sitting down looking at the 5,400 words in the Bible, they have 170,000 words to choose from. So this idea of one-to-one equivalence and correspondence is a little bit silly when you're going from a reductionistic language to a, you know, a lots and lots of words to choose from, and it gives translators kind of a little bit of leeway, right? And what do they, what do they pick? So um, we've used the example before about snow and how the Inuits have all of these words for snow. They have a word for sleeting snow and sideways snow and blowing snow and billowing snow and softly floating snow. But in English, snow. So we lose some, we lose meaning, right? So we have similar things like that happening in Greek because many words have multiple meanings. Male, man, husband, all people. Same word. Female, woman, wife. One word. I wanted to point out um, the Hebrew word devar has 50 possible translations in English. I do have a, a visual for this. Hopefully, maybe. This is what the concordance looks like for that word. 50 possible translations in English. So these translators, as they're going through and picking which word to put there, they really have to rely on context, on their own comprehension, their own beliefs, and the Holy Spirit to figure out what word, what word goes there. Matthew 24, 4 Let's just look at this briefly. Um, in the ASV, says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man lead you astray. Well, in the NIV, it's not no man, it's no one. Which is it? It's all Greek to me. I'm kidding. It's no one. <laughs> so when does it matter? When does that bias matter? It matters when there is something like blatantly theologically wrong. That's when it matters. Like I said before, we're only talking about 1% of the Bible. For the most part, they're all good. But if in that 1% is something that causes a theological issue, stumbling block, or is just plain, you know, not what you believe, that's when it matters. I'm going to skip over this whole section. <laughs> because I'm running out of time. But some of the things, some of those theological differences that exist in translations are things like gender, the role of women in the church, predestination, the deity of Jesus, the Trinity. These are all things that, to me, those really matter. 
And if I have a translation that's not standing up to my beliefs on those issues, I'm not going to use it. So looking at theology, um, one example I wanted to give is just Calvinistic views. So we live in an area, you know, we have Calvin College, we have Cornerstone, we have a lot of Calvinistic views in this area. That's one issue It matters to me if my Bible's supporting that. It does. So the ESV, the NIV, and the NLT are all influenced by Calvinistic views to some degree or another, some more than others. I think the ESV and the NLT more so than the NIV from what I've seen. Does that mean you should never use it? No, but it should mean that be aware. Be aware that maybe there's a little bit of translation bias happening on that particular issue. So let's look at um, Romans 8, 29. Now, do you remember, I think it was last week when Pastor Josh said, if he's cooking dinner at his house and someone RSVPs, he foreknew who RSVP'd, So he predestined how much food to cook. If it was the other way around, the Calvinists would jump, remember? Okay. So let's look at the NASB where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Cool. I like that. Let's look at the NIV. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, now here, we're missing a comma, which to me, okay, it kind of lumps it a little bit closer than I would like. We've all heard this, let's eat, Grandma, let's eat, Grandma, right? Punctuation matters, right? Okay, let's look at the Amplified. For those whom he foreknew and loved and chose beforehand, he also predestined. And the NLT, which takes the most liberties, um, for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. To me, it matters. To some people, it might not. I think people historically sometimes take a little thing like that and make a whole big theology out of it. So it might seem little. But just be aware, okay? Another one would be um, women in church leadership, 1 Timothy 3.1. The NIV says, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. The Passion Translation, if any of you aspire to be an overseer in the church, set your heart on a noble ambition. The NLT says, if someone desires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. And the NASB, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is fine work that he desired to do so. It matters. To me, it matters, right? And I I have some opinions on that. I think, you know, Jesus wouldn't love the word of God being used to oppress people. I'm pretty sure of that. And I'm certainly not going to be speaking from a translation that is attempting to illegitimize my calling from God. That doesn't seem right. So it matters to me. Philippians 4, 12 to 13 um, is one of the most taken out of context verses in the whole Bible. I can do all things 
through Christ who gives me strength. But what people fail to recognize is that that was actually about some extreme persecution. That's what Paul was talking about, was this massive persecution. So briefly, let's look at the Passion Translation. Just go to that last line where it says, um, and I find the strength of Christ's explosive power infuses me to conquer every difficulty. The NIV says, I can do all this, meaning the previous persecution. The NASB says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And NLT, I can do everything through Christ. Lots of liberties there. All right, I'm going to skip through some of these and jump to, um, I wanted to point out Mark 10, 24, because here's another theological issue. Um, This is the new King James Version. It says, children... How hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? The Passion Translation, it is next to impossible for those who trust in their riches to find their way into the kingdom of God. NIV, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Where'd the riches go? NLT, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. Is it trusting in riches or is it just plain hard? Well, we know it's not hard, right? If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, it's not hard. You just have a relationship with Jesus. So the bottom line is no translation is perfect. They all have some flaw here or there. There's a little quirk here or there. What I want you to do is just be aware of them and be able to choose a version that works for you but with the full knowledge that eh, there might be quirks, don't start developing a theology on unicorns if that's not really what God meant. So today I talked about word for word versus thought for thought. I talked about source text and including the Aramaic. Please, it's really cool when you dig into the Aramaic. How it was translated single person versus team. What source text did they use? Um, theological differences. Those are the main things we talked about today. The Bible Hub is an amazing tool where you can compare verses. If you could flip up that chart real quick. So I have been, the, the one with all the different translations, I don't know if you have that. I have been looking into translation. This has been one of my things. So I've been looking at the things that matter to me. Oh, keep going. There should be another one. It should have like NIV, NLT, yeah, there we go. And I wanted to know, okay, let's do some research. What was the source text? Is it old? Is there, does it, you know, use Aramaic? Is it word for word or thought for thought? Is it gender inclusive? That's a whole nother topic. Um, Is there a denomination that like uses this a lot or claims this Bible? And some of the quirks. And you can see here, um, I I put some in green and some in red. I don't know. I'm not trying to make up your mind for you. This was my study. What I want you to do is see that this is something you can do. Find out what matters to you. What are your thoughts and opinions and the theology that matters to you? And go through and say, okay, this Bible works for me. This Bible doesn't. You can see um, in green, I have the ISV and the Passion Translation highlighted. I've been having a lot of fun, you guys, rereading the New Testament and the Passion Translation. It uses the Aramaic. You can click on these little dots, and it gives you this whole explanation of, like, 
why I translated it this way, how it's translated in Greek. It's like having a concordance with Aramaic built right in. It's been a lot of fun. It speaks to me. The ISV I've also found um, has worked pretty well. You've probably noticed the NLT is not my favorite. It's not. It takes a ton of liberties. It started with a paraphrase. It has Calvinistic theology. Um, it's restrictive, the, one of the most restrictive theology when it comes to women. And I just, it's not my fave. But I'm not going to tell you not to use it. The benefit of that translation is it has a really low reading comprehension level. So it's accessible to lots of people. And if that's the one that speaks to you, cool, use it. But just be aware of some of those issues. Because the truth is that the best Bible translation is the one you're actually going to read and connect with. I would encourage you to listen to the Holy Spirit as you read. And if he's showing you something, like, hey, dig into this, dig. Dig in. Listen to him. Let him guide your study. I want to end with a final comparison. And that's in 1 Timothy 4.13. Where it says, here's the new King, King James Version, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. NIV, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. The NASB, until I come, give your attention to the public reading, to the exhortation and teaching. And the Passion Translation. So until I come, be diligent in devouring the Word of God. Be faithful in prayer and in the teaching of the believers. Devouring the word. I love that. Isn't that just, it's such a picture. We just, have you ever felt that way? That you just couldn't get enough, that you wanted to devour the word? Find the translation that does that for you. And know that it's all about relationship. God is speaking to us through his word. The Holy Spirit is illuminating things to us. It's living, it's active, it is sharper than any double edged sword. It is God's love letter to us. So I want to close. And just, if there's anyone here who does not have a relationship with Jesus, and you desire to have that relationship with Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity today. That's something we do in this church. We close every service by giving this opportunity to come to the Lord. So I'd like to read, we always talk about Romans 10, 9, and 10. That's the verse. I'd like to read it to you in the Passion Translation. And what is God's living message? It is the revelation of faith for salvation, which is the message that we preach. For if you publicly declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will experience salvation. The heart that believes in him receives the gift of the righteousness of God, and then the mouth confesses, resulting in salvation. So if that's you, I'd like everyone to just close your eyes so we can have a private moment. If that is you and you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart, it's time to come back to him. It's time 
to make that declaration to become one of Jesus's children. I'd like to give you that opportunity with every eye closed to just raise that hand, put a, put a finger up, a hand up, anyone online. I'd also encourage you to either put it in the chat or reach out to us. And let's close by praying together. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you use your word to speak to us, to inspire us, that the Holy Spirit uses it to penetrate our hearts. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice he made on the cross. And we thank you that through him we can have salvation. Today, Lord, we turn our hearts back to you and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We accept the forgiveness that you offer. And we make you the Lord of our life. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. All right. How many of you feel like you learned something this morning? All right. You know, it's, it's exciting, and, and I, I, I really appreciate the balance that she gave between recognizing that there are, there are things that we can learn, we can do stuff, and recognizing that God has been actively watching over his word for thousands of years. And he has done so much um, to accomplish that. So, just great. All right. We've got a few announcements that we're, we've got coming up. Um, on the 31st of the month, we're going to do baby dedications. If you or someone you know wants to dedicate their child, please let us know. We'd like you to sign up in advance so that we can create a certificate for you and all of that. By the way, did you know that a baby dedication certificate is a legal identification? Hey, learn something else today. All right, so please... If you guys are interested in um, getting your baby, please sign up in the back um, info desk. We have Bible studies have started on Wednesday nights. Um, we are having two studies simultaneously each Wednesday night, one in English, one in Spanish. Um, so take your pick. Uh, if you're here at the 930, I assume you probably want to do English. English, by the way, um, the study that they're doing right now is, is it too late for God to do something with me. That's the topic. So they're going to be looking at people who God used, how he used them, and you will be inspired on how God wants to use you. Come, that's 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Um, this coming Saturday is the men's Bible breakfast. Um, we've been going through something pretty, pretty good there too. How many of you guys um, have been to any of those? It is great. So I would love to invite you, see you on Saturday morning. Um, and also Saturday, every Saturday, so the men's breakfast is once a month, every Saturday, our prayer, United Prayer Time, has been moved to Saturday mornings. We're going to do the Bible studies on Wednesday nights. Saturday morning, if you want to come every Saturday morning, 8 a.m., there will be prayer here. Um, this past week, they started going and praying through the strategic goals we have here as a church. So if you want to come be a part of that, Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. Um, we also 
the 21st of August, there's going to be a community outreach. We're going to be um, doing a big event right here in our parking lot. I really encourage you, volunteer, be a part. We want to make a difference and an impact, not just in our families, but also in the community and the buildings and apartments complexes that are right here surrounding us. So come help us to serve this community. There's going to be games and hot dogs and things like that. We need people to help us with those games. Um, if this is your first time here, please come find us afterwards. I'd love to meet you. If it's not your first time here, I still would love to talk to you. So if you've got any questions, come on up. Um, just so you know, every Sunday morning we do have uh, coffee um, and sometimes pastries um, before service. Uh, come. It's a great excuse to get here a little early. Then you can get some coffee and you can come in and be here for the start of service. That would be awesome. So, uh, I do want to take one quick thing. Before we get into the offering today, I want to read the story from Mark 12, 41 through 44. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. The poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. Now, if you do not understand sowing and reaping, you read that verse and you're like, what is going on? Why was Jesus excited to watch this woman get rid of her last bit of money? It'd be like watching someone lose their money at gambling. Is that fun? No. But see, Jesus understands something. He understands what Scripture says about sowing and reaping. If you see someone buy what you know is a winning lottery ticket, how does that change the way you feel? Big time. If you watch a farmer plant seed and you know he's going to get a good harvest, how does that make you feel? We can see the story in the Old Testament when the prophet of God went to another widow who was poor and asked her to make him a bread from her last bit of, of a flour and oil. And again, if we don't understand sowing and reaping, we look at that and say, why was he so selfish? But the opposite is true. He wasn't trying to be selfish. He was giving her an opportunity to multiply what she had. He understood that if she would demonstrate to God her willingness to sow, then God was going to come down and bless him. And we read in the story and we recognize that's exactly what God did. He blessed the little she had and it became enough for her to, to live on and to make a living with. She began to sell the flower and oil that supernaturally continued to flow. But what caused that? What released God's blessing on their finances? The act of giving. Every Sunday we come up here, we, we mention that we're going to take an offering. We mention that. And if you don't understand 
sowing and reaping, if you don't understand the supernatural blessing that God promises on that, you might look back and say, what is it with all these church people? Why do they encourage you to give? Do they just want to take your money? No. No, the point is, God has put into action the principles of sowing and reaping. God blesses when we give. I'll tell you, there are times when I have forgotten to give. You know what I, I, what I feel when I forget to give? Oh, I missed it. I missed an opportunity. An opportunity to release God's blessing on my finances. That's really what we're doing. So we're going to pray a blessing over the offering as we close today. The, the offering you can give online, you can give there, uh, and the buckets, you can actually mail it in if you'd like. But why are you making sure that you're aware of that opportunity? Just like Jesus. And, and Paul, he actually said these words. He said, it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the reward that will abound to your account. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for the many things that you are doing in this body, that you are doing through this church and this congregation. We just pray your blessing on each and every one of those endeavors, Lord. We pray that you would bless the seeds that are planted here today, that they would grow and be a harvest. We just thank you for your supernatural principles that you have set in motion in our lives. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thank you guys so much uh, for coming this morning and uh, look forward to seeing you Wednesday night or Saturday morning, men, and then next Sunday morning as well. God bless.